Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening. Though theaters, music, and sports venues remain closed during the pandemic, museums have fewer challenges to address. Atlanta's High Museum of Art will begin its reopening next week, and Executive Director Rand Suffolk will discuss the details later this hour. We'll revisit a conversation about hot dogs with Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times writer Kim Severson. She's a rock star among foodies. First, an all-star in the kitchen. Atlanta was at the top as chef Kevin Gillespie figured prominently during this season's Top Chef All-Stars on Bravo TV. He is with us now via Zoom. Chef Kevin, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. After you appeared in season six of Top Chef Las Vegas, you didn't want to return for another run. What changed your mind? You're right. Uh, certainly after the first sort of round of Top Chef, I had decided that that, was, uh, that, that chapter had been written, I guess, if you were in the book of, of my life and felt like it didn't need to be amended. But the reality is that after the last few years of, of dealing with um, sort of long-term illness and then, and then becoming well, uh, I wanted to return because I felt like I had an obligation to uh, the viewers of that show who maybe were having a struggle in their life, whether it be illness or just in any form, to kind of come and tell my story and try to share a bit of hope. So it felt like um, now was the time to kind of continue that story that I started, you know, 10 years ago. Mm, it was noble. This entire season of Top Chef All-Stars aired during the quarantine Without sports events on TV, do you think the competitive aspect of Top Chef had some viewers following even more intensely than before? Absolutely. It's interesting. I never would have thought that. But obviously, given the state of the world, it was literally sort of the only kind of competitive thing that you could watch for a little while. And, and I think people really appreciated that. I think that there were a lot of sports viewers 
Um, and frankly, I just think there were a lot of folks who needed a break from the challenges that were sort of persistent in everyday life. And I do think that viewership was probably higher. And I think a lot of folks really enjoyed it. I was told by someone that you could even bet on Top Chef in Las Vegas. I haven't confirmed that to be the case, but apparently you could. Oh, gosh. Well, it's especially interesting because Top Chef has an unexpected dynamic among the chefs. While it is a competition and a fierce one, your behavior is not cutthroat toward one another. In fact, you offer each other advice on how to improve various dishes. Would you talk about the culture of Top Chef? I think that the culture among chefs in general is one that has a tendency to be very collaborative. Um, we view each other as contemporaries, some people as artists, some as craftsmen. I guess it depends on the way that you view it. But, but regardless of that, everyone wants to share ideas across the table uh, to improve each other. And so I think that when you take Top Chef All-Stars in particular, that sort of that idea has been brought to an, an entirely new level because not only do you have that industry-related camaraderie, I think you also have a bit of the fraternity, if you will, of Top Chef, that everyone who was competing this season had competed before. And so they were comfortable in their surroundings. They understood um, the reality of what we were going through. And frankly, the name All-Stars kind of, for me, is the easiest connotation is that I do think of this almost like if you do follow sports, if you follow the All-Star game in baseball or the, the Pro Bowl, um, anytime you have really high-level people who compete all the time, um, when they have an opportunity to be in these special circumstances, they have a tendency to lift each other up more than cutting each other down. And it's truly unique in Top Chef because of the fact that, in fact, you know, there really is only going to be crowned one winner. There's usually quite a bit of money at stake. But nevertheless, I'm, I'm really proud to say that I think everyone's um, sense of purpose and morality, maybe their professionalism, always overrides that desire simply to win. And, I, and that's something that I'm really proud of from Top Chef. It also seems that during a short period of time, you bonded closely with the other chefs. Is there one chef among those you worked with this season who has since become a real friend? Well, you know, going into the season, Brian Voltaggio and I um, were, were very close friends. We competed together on Top Chef season six. And, um, and so we were quite friendly before the show ever began. And in fact, I, to a certain degree, we kind of both decided to compete together. It was the decision was sort of mutual. Um, that being said, after meeting some of these people this season who I didn't know, um, I have become very good friends with Karen Atunowitz. She was someone that I, that I knew, reputationally speaking, but I didn't know her personally. And I found her to be a, an incredibly intelligent person, a really empathetic person too. Someone that, that understood the stresses and challenges of being a restaurateur and then not being in your restaurants while you're here, you know, filming a television show. That's a very unique emotional experience. And so uh, I think she and I became very close and have, have stayed in contact since, and I'm sure we'll remain friends for years. Were the chefs in touch? Were you in touch with each other as these episodes aired? <laughs> we actually were. We we all have a uh, an app called WhatsApp on our on our phones, and we have sort of one big giant messaging board. 
And so every day when the, when the show would be airing on Thursdays, you know, maybe an hour prior to the show airing, you would, you would start getting notifications that your fellow chefs were kind of messaging each other back and forth. And then as the show was actually on, we would kind of all just sort of sit there and watch it and, and be, and be messaging each other back and forth during the show. So it was always a lot of fun. Most of it was us kind of mocking or making fun of each other, just kind of playing around. Um, but at the same time, at the end of every episode, when someone got sent home, and, and again, we all, we all already know what happened, but in those moments, it was really special because everyone would, would send a message to the person who had gotten kicked off that week, and a, a message of encouragement, something, you know, you're, you know, sort of validating how great of a chef they really are and reminding them that, that it's a competition and it's a television show. And so to not take their loss too seriously, that it doesn't, that does not you know, um, as it were, define them in many respects. Why do I feel like that doesn't happen among football players? <laughs> I don't think that it does. You know, I can't, I can't speak to that. I wish I had a joint career as a professional football player. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't think that they necessarily do that to one another. I think that Top Chef is an extremely cathartic experience um, participating in it. And I think that anytime you go through something as emotionally taxing as that in such close proximity as you do alongside your fellow competitors, you naturally form a bond and a reliance upon one another. And I just think that that alone perpetuates the emotion of support as opposed to that sort of desire to constantly compete. It's, it's very interesting because I think that during the challenges, we're very serious about doing our best, and, and I think maybe that's when we put our game face on. But the reality is that that's a very small amount of the time that we're there. We're maybe competing for a couple hours a day. The rest of the day, we're spent very close to one another in constant communication. And so it's, an, it's a unique bond that is formed in that scenario. Now, on this season of the show, you were able to enjoy some marvelous cultural experiences in Los Angeles and in Italy. Which events were particularly special for you? I think maybe one of the most special for me was the tribute to Jonathan Gold. I think that I have always admired his position as a food critic. I like to think of him more as a food writer. He was a man who always made it a point to showcase the best of people. He, he was not a person who wrote scathing reviews to to hurt people's business or to bring them down. He really made it a point to share the story of people who he thought was special and who he thought was doing, who he thought were doing something special. And so having an opportunity to pay tribute to his life and his work was, was really unbelievable for me. When we made it to Italy, frankly, the entire experience was just absolutely grand. But what I really enjoyed more than anything, I think, um, was the truffle hunt. Uh, I am, I'm a man who I love the outdoors. I love any excuse to be outdoors. And I especially love the fall, which is when we were there. And just sort of all of the pieces of that together, the dogs, the, the smell, literally, the moment we stepped foot into the woods, you could smell the truffles. You didn't know where they were, but you could smell them. And it was just such an incredible experiential moment that uh, you hear people say a sense of place when they make reference to things. I've, I don't know that I've ever felt a stronger sense of place than in that moment. Oh, wow. You have a tremendous following here at home as well. What has been the response from the Atlantic community about your 
appearances on Top Chef? It, it's been really positive. It's been really uh, impactful. You know, doing Top Chef is very difficult. It's a very taxing experience um, to go through. As I, as I sort of alluded to, it takes you away from your business and from your family for quite a long time. And so you do it hoping that when you come home um, that you will find maybe some support for your restaurants if you have those like I do. Um, or maybe that you had an opportunity with your voice on the show to touch someone, to, to help someone. And I've been really blown away by the volume of people who have contacted me following my participation in the show to share with me different sentiments. You know, there are a lot of people who appreciate how candid I was about my journey through, um, through cancer and through treatment, um, that they needed that to help lift them up. There, were, there have been a lot of people who have reached out to me and said that the way that I um, behaved in the Restaurant Wars episode, where I sort of owned the consequences of um, the mistakes that my team made collaboratively, that they felt like that was a real exhibition in leadership, and that they felt like that um, helped them in their life. And frankly, a lot of Atlantans reached out to me with messages to the effect of, you know, that's why you're special and that's why Atlanta needs you. And I, I can't tell you enough how much that means to me. It, it literally brings a tear to my eye to think that that I've had any any ability in my life to do something that even in a small way has impacted my community for good. That's That's really what I care most about. We'll return to my conversation with Atlanta chef Kevin Gillespie after a quick break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Let's return to my conversation with Atlanta chef Kevin Gillespie. Kevin, your restaurants and your cooking reflect your love of family. Gun Show was named for memories of time spent with your dad. Your grandmother was a huge influence on your cooking. Were there dishes you created on the show that reflected not only Atlantic cuisine, but the influence of family as well. Absolutely. I mean, frankly, it happened countless times. I think one of the best dishes that I made, though, that that really reflected family, it actually happened on Last Chance Kitchen. So after I had been eliminated from the Restaurant Wars episode, I had an opportunity to earn my way back onto the show by competing uh, in an alternate uh, show called Last Chance Kitchen, which is sort of like um, the quick fire component of Top Chef, but much, much larger. And I was asked to recreate a dish from childhood memory that was impactful to me now professionally. So that's hard. You have to find something that you remember, but then elevate it. And I had an opportunity to prepare 
um, a roasted trout with creamed corn. I'm sort of oversimplifying the dish, but it was an interesting dish because it had and it provided an opportunity for me to showcase something from a memory of my dad, the roasted trout from our fishing trips as a child, the cream corn, which is one of the very, very first cooking techniques I ever learned from my grandmother. And then at that same time, I was able to elevate the dish um, to add some elements that maybe are sort of current to my cooking today. I did um, a pickled tomato element that sort of has almost like a, a Vietnamese or a Laotian kind of quality about it that was inspired by a dish that I had at a restaurant on Buford Highway. And so I felt like that particular dish really showed where I am in my career right now. And I thought that it was a really nice way to to bring some symbolism of, of all the different elements, you know, from my childhood, my upbringing, my career, and then, you know, what I find inspiring today and kind of wrap them all up into, into one plate of food. A special treat for classical music lovers was the challenge the chef Testens had at Disney Hall with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And you were with their sensational conductor, Gustavo Dudamel. Kevin, it seemed you particularly enjoyed that experience, and you won the challenge. Would you describe the event? That was a really special moment. It was my first time inside Walt Disney Hall, and it is just stunningly beautiful. It is hard to describe to someone who hasn't seen it. Even if you've seen photographs, really, you need to sit in the space to understand what's so special about it. That was a really beautiful challenge. I, I find music and food to be very cohesive with each other. I find that, frankly, a lot of people who admire or who practice music also admire and practice food. And so the two have a tendency to go hand in hand with each other. And there's a lot of words that we use when describing food, symphonic, for example, that really obviously have, have direct parallels. What I liked about that challenge was that we were asked to take what might seem initially to be contrasting elements, maybe things that don't work with each other. So in my case, it was sweet and salty. And I was paired with Melissa King, who inevitably was the winner of this season. And she and I created a dish together with our two different elements and made something quite harmonious. And I think that what's beautiful about that challenge is that it really showcases what it takes to be a great chef, which is just sort of this capacity to think outside of the box. And Gustavo made a comment. I asked him a question about how do you take elements that perhaps feel incredibly contrasting and bring them together? And he commented that he actually felt that those were the best things to bring together, that when you take high contrast and you find a way to weave them together seamlessly, oftentimes you end up with some of the most beautiful music you could possibly make. And I think the same could be true of food. When you can find a way to bridge highly contrasting elements, you make for very, very dynamic food. And so for me, I thought that challenge all the way across the board was one that was very easy to embrace as a chef, one that was very inspirational for, for the participants, and, and one that, for me, really, um, I thought as a whole, all of us did a very good job of honoring the anniversary of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Yeah, this is their centenary year. I love hearing you speak about the affinity of music and cooking, and especially similarities in terms i guess chef and maestro are very are very similar to begin with you're both directing but 
what what other words besides symphonic i i guess does counterpoint or sure uh, i mean counterpoint harmony harmonious. yeah exactly yeah. harmonious is probably i would say that's probably the most the most obvious word but truly i mean i can think of certain you know sort of symphonic compositions where there are elements that are meant to stir you and maybe not necessarily in a in a smooth way you also drew some inspiration from the interior of Walt Disney Concert Hall. Is that correct, from the architectural design? I did, actually. This is something, you know, of course, that I never expected when, uh, when we were there. I, I had my, my mind wrapped around this idea that I would close my eyes and I would listen to the music, and that, was, that would inspire me, but coincidentally, because it's just such a beautiful space, Right when we sat down in the hall, and maybe it was because it was empty, and so you had really the opportunity to look around and, and take in your surroundings, I realized that this ceiling, which is, you know, cuffed, I guess you would say, and it's obviously designed that way for acoustics, resembles, at least in my mind, it resembles the shape of cabbage leaves um, that naturally have a cupped shape. And so... Um, it, maybe it probably sounded like the strangest thing in the world to mention it at that moment, but I just sort of instantly gravitated to this to this idea that we were going to use cabbage and it was going to be a very literal inspiration, you know, as opposed to just sort of having to explain it conceptually. It was going to be very simple to say we made cabbage because the room looks like cabbage um, and it actually <laughs> turned out to be a very successful thing to do. Oh, it was. This is incidental, but I don't know if you know, the concertmaster of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, he, he Martin Chalifour, he, his first job was with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. He was associate concertmaster here in Atlanta for some years. Excellent. I like hearing that. That makes me happy to hear yeah, there's a nice connection and quite a foodie himself. Both times that you were eliminated this season, it seemed you disagreed with the judges and thought differently about the food you prepared. No doubt that was frustrating. Was that the most disappointing aspect of your experience? No, not exactly. You know, I will always advocate for the work that I do, uh, and I'll also always admit the mistakes that I've made. And I think actually in the Restaurant Wars episode, I felt like it was very appropriate for me to be sent home. Um, I did not think that we did as bad a job as they sort of implied. I think that to a certain degree, we had a bit of a victim of circumstances situation going on there. But without elaborating too much on that, I did feel it was important to stand up for my teammates, and I was okay with that. In the final elimination where I was sent home, I vehemently disagreed with the judges uh, and still to this day have. And, you know, I think that's just part of being a creator. I think when you're someone who builds or sculpts or, or conducts, you put every ounce of your energy, every ounce of your heart and soul into it. And when, when you do that, there's a vulnerability that comes out that I think has a tendency sometimes when you face criticism um, to rear its head immediately in disagreement. I think that for me, I felt very strongly and do continue to feel, feel very strongly about the food that I made in the finals. Um, I think it was really beautiful. And I personally think that it represented the challenge better. But 
you know, unfortunately, despite my, my greatest desires, they don't actually ask me how I think the challenges should be judged. So um, usually when I'm disagreeing, I'm mostly doing it for my own sake, I suppose. But in that particular challenge, I felt, I felt pretty, pretty strongly about the fact that they had gotten it wrong. Now, that being said, it was not the most disappointing moment for me of the season. I think that the most disappointing moment for me of the season actually did come in the Restaurant Wars episode when I was just, I was so exhausted from making the show and I was so frustrated from the way that that particular episode works because it's, it's very demanding, but it's also one that I don't particularly like the process to opening a restaurant in such a cavalier way. I guess as a person who opens restaurants professionally, I take that very seriously and it feels a little, it feels a little forced to me. Uh, and I have a tendency to get in my own head about it. And so I think I made a lot of mistakes in that episode, including losing my temper on a couple of occasions. Um, that's not, a, that's not really who I am as a person. I'm someone who is traditionally very metered and put together. And so I was embarrassed to have lost my temper. And then just having misspoke on a number of occasions in that episode, I kind of in a, in a very unthoughtful way made reference to plantation cuisine, which was, was very tacky. And it was something that I actually didn't intend to say. I didn't even mean the word plantation. I think I was just I was just so discombobulated in those moments that, that I made a lot of mistakes that are very uncharacteristic of me. I tend to be a person who's very thoughtful and very caring, who's very concerned with ensuring that everything that I say and do upholds a certain amount of ethics. And I don't feel like I did my best from a character standpoint, personally characters in that episode. I, I hope to think that I redeemed some of that in the end when I did stand up for the mistakes that I made. Um, but nevertheless, watching that episode after it aired, I was a little embarrassed for some of those um, things that I did that I thought didn't really showcase who I am as a person very well. Well, it is so difficult when you are in the moment, and as you said, you were exhausted, and there are all these different comments being flung at you. And hearing what you said about still believing that what you did was fine— um, it just underscores how subjective art itself can be. I mean, it's not like an athletic challenge, it, whether it's a music competition or a food competition. In the end, there, yeah, there are technical aspects, but it is subjective. Absolutely. And I think that especially once you reach the point inside a competition when the competition is so narrow in the sense that, that the margin of victory is incredibly narrow, you have to become, as it were, quote, nitpicky. But frankly, the only way to nitpick is to be subjective. Like all of the things that are very literal, have, they're already gone. No one has made any glaring mistakes. You're down to a point of deciding who you believe did the best job. And that is incredibly subjective. I think the other thing too about, this is where art to art and music is incredibly clear to me, is that as a person who takes both of those mediums of art very seriously, I would say that the artist has the right to choose to, to do things in a way that they believe are unique um, and personal to them. And so sometimes that means that for a musician, that might mean that their music can oftentimes be difficult to listen to because they're striving to create an emotive response in their music. You know, with art, it's actually very easy for people to understand what I'm talking about. In visual art, 
when an artist, let's take Picasso, for example, chooses to paint in a, in a form of distorted reality. You could argue, well, you know, he didn't paint a face right. That's not what people look like, but that's not really the point. And so when I think about sometimes the food that I cook, I have a very clear voice in the way that I cook. I think that most people uh, who know anything about food could probably pick out one of my dishes pretty easily in a blind lineup because it is very me and I'm very expressive in my, in my food. What happens sometimes though is that when you do finally get to that point where the decision is a subjective one, it makes it very hard. You either, they either like it or they don't like it because it doesn't, my stuff doesn't tend to be very middle of the road. Um, I, I don't think that it's, uh, I don't know that my cooking has ever been described as subtle. So it's, uh, when you get to that point, it does come down to something purely subjective. And so for me, I think what's important more than anything is that I was extremely pleased with that dish. And so I'm okay because I can go home feeling very proud of the work that I did. Earlier you spoke about being public and candid about your battle with cancer. Congratulations on your comeback. You seem to be just in great shape. And I wish you continued good health. As far as we're concerned, Chef Kevin Gillespie, you are the top. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I hope we can talk again sometime. Thank you so much for all your time today. Thank you. It'd be my absolute pleasure. Local restaurateur and Top Chef All-Star Kevin Gillespie. With the pandemic, stage actors and professional musicians don't know when they can resume their jobs. Theaters and concert venues must deal with the fact that audiences, as well as the performers, are in dangerously close proximity to one another. Museums are a different story, as they can control the number of visitors admitted and devise social distancing for people in each gallery. A number of museums around the country have opened to the public, In Atlanta, the High Museum of Art will reopen next Tuesday to members and frontline workers, with a complete reopening to the general public later in the month. Last month, after the High announced their decision to reopen, Executive Director Rand Suffolk joined me to discuss the process. We've been thinking about this, as you can imagine, for a very long time. We had initially, just as a, as a placeholder, thought about the possibility and began planning around the possibility of reopening at the beginning of June. And as time progressed, we had also simultaneously been trying to figure out, at least when it came to our summer camp, uh, what we would be doing there. And so, candidly, we had half of our education staff working on de- the development of a virtual summer camp and the other half of our staff were focused on sort of maintaining our momentum for the possibility of a physical summer camp. And at the end of the day, what we ultimately decided to do was to kind of hopefully from a very measured standpoint and a very responsible standpoint, figure out how to do a soft reopening or re-entry into kind of the, the big revival, so to speak. And so what we've elected to do is 
we will move forward with our summer camp program, a physical summer camp here on campus. We have fully incorporated all of the governor's uh, mandates regarding summer camp. We've been informed, certainly, by the CDC guidelines that are in place. About a month ago, the museum became a member of the American Camp Association, and we've also informed all of our policies and procedures around camp with their guidelines. So we ultimately got to a place where we we determined that we could not only provide a safe space for these kids, uh, but also a really fun experience for them as well. And so we wanted to make sure that we could open to camp in a way that was very responsible on all accounts. And so then on July 7th, uh, for the next 10 days, from July 7th until the 17th, we are going to open uh, exclusively to members. And then also uh, we're making admission free to any medical professionals or frontline individuals and teachers that want to come back to their museum. And then on July 18th, then uh, we'll be off to the races and we'll be open to the, our, the general public at that point. But we, we felt very strongly and after a lot of, of, of critical thinking about this, we thought that this sort of progressive measured approach back was probably the most responsible and the most sensible, all things considered. Mm. I read that the Association of Art Museum Directors helped connect institutions that shared documents on reopening plans. Were you in consultation with other museums? I'm actually on the board of the Association of Art Museum Directors. I figured that given the prominence of our museum and and your status in the community, that it wasn't necessary to ask if you were a member. Well... We are, the museum is a very proud member of that group, and I'm, I'm privileged to serve on their board right now. And I think one of the positive byproducts of this whole mess that we've been living through is the fact that there have been multiple weekly, ongoing, consistent uh, Zoom calls, you know, video conference calls with colleagues from all over the country. Um, we've all been, you know, I was telling someone the other day that when it comes to this pandemic, and uh, the response to the pandemic, there's a little bit of, you know, one of my favorite, what I love to tell people is sometimes is, you know, I regret to inform you, but you're completely average. Um, <laughs> we're all experiencing the exact same thing. And we really have been leaning on each other. And we've also been, I think, taking advantage and, and, and listening to our colleagues in Asia, our colleagues in Europe that are a few months ahead of us in terms of this uh, return and, and learning what we can from them, deconstructing their models to see what makes the most sense for us. And yes, we've developed uh, probably at this point, it's close to a 20-page plan that from an operational standpoint guides how we will behave uh, and how to protect our staff, uh, but also the steps we will take to make sure that we're creating an environment that is safe as possible for our visitors. It's a living, breathing document. A few weeks ago, it was nine pages long. As I said now, it's probably pushing 20 pages. The more, the closer we get to reopening, I think the more detail that we're, we're building upon it, but we'll be ready. So what safety measures will you implement? Well, I mean, there's a, stay tuned for that. We will be releasing a whole, you know, we're probably going to do a video. We'll be doing a lot of messaging around this. Um, there'll be uh Obviously, our staff will um, be wearing personal protective gear. Uh, we're moving as close to a touchless transactional model as we can for people. There'll be hand sanitizer everywhere. We're increasing the amount of surface cleaning that we're doing and so forth. 
but you know, we've got a series of things that we're going to be doing and we'll be candid about articulating what those are, but we're also going to be asking for our visitors help and understanding that this is really a team effort. And if you don't feel well, or if you're sick or if you, you know, and so forth, please don't come to your museum right now because there's only so much we can do. My wife, who's brilliant, shared with me an article a couple weeks back from The Atlantic, and it was a professor at Harvard's medical school, and she was writing about the fact that, and she wasn't pejorative in any way, shape, or form regarding the the shutdown and the self-quarantining and so forth. She thought that was very necessary, but she said, as we look to the future and the fact that there is not a vaccine ready now, and there may not be for many, many months, you know, we have to come to grips with the reality that we'll need to figure out how do we live with the pandemic, not necessarily in opposition to it. And she very articulately said, you know, risk is not binary. You know, there are shades of risk. There's a continuum of risk. And as a society, we need to figure out how do we live with this pandemic right now, but do so in a way which as reasonably and as effectively as possible allows us to mitigate the level of risk that's there. And so certainly we can't promise people that come to the museum any more than they can promise you if you go to the supermarket or the bank that you may not come into contact with someone that has the virus. But what we can promise you is a series of steps that we're taking that we believe uh, in the most reasonable fashion demonstrate our commitment to your safety and, and the value that we place on our staff safety as well. Will there be a limit to the number of people who can visit the museum at any one time? That's a great question, and the answer is yes. Um, we'll be moving, uh, especially at the beginning, to uh, exclusively time tickets so that we can manage the throughput. We've done a lot of review of our individual spaces to determine what's appropriate in each space to ensure appropriate social distancing. So yes, that is that will in fact be the case. Mm. Which special exhibitions were cut short during the shutdown? Well, right before the shutdown, we had just opened two wonderful shows. Um, one was on the work of Pajo, and the other was a permanent collection exhibition that was, was entitled The Plot Thickens, which was looking at um, some European uh, graphic art that we put on display. We're still playing with the schedule. Uh, there's a possibility that we'll be able to extend the run of those two. They were both beautiful exhibitions, very proud of them. Uh, we would love to do what we can to make sure that, at least for a period of weeks, uh, that they would be available to our public. We had to altogether cancel an exhibition entitled Speechless that we had co-organized with the Dallas Museum of Art. Uh, thankfully, it's a show that had a life at Dallas. People were able to see it. There's a wonderful catalog. Uh, but unfortunately, it was a show where we had reached out to about a half dozen contemporary designers and ask them to radically consider the notion of accessibility uh, within the museum space. And uh, as you can imagine, a large part of that exhibition was really focused upon the experience or the experiential rather. So there's a lot of touching involved, there was, a, you know, and so forth. And um, it just would not have been appropriate uh, for us to have tried to continue with that show given the circumstances. We were very sensitive to the, the reality of that. And so that show was canceled. And otherwise, we were, we were kind of fortunate in terms of how things played out. The, the larger concern for us really is this first year that we're back. As you can imagine, with traveling exhibitions, you know, we're part of a much larger ecosystem. And as I mentioned before, 
all of our colleague institutions are going through the exact same thing that we have. And so that exhibition schedule for all of us has, has really been thrown into a little bit of chaos as we all try and figure out how do we either extend shows or have to cancel shows or and so forth. So there's been a, we've been swimming through quite a bit of ambiguity, but we do anticipate having a solid, probably for sure, from September on, uh, we'll be back in the swing of things in terms of our exhibition schedule. But as we reopen, we really are going to focus almost exclusively on our permanent collection and also some of the, the couple, three shows that we may have already up. Well, and the plot thickens is from the permanent collection. Uh, we spoke with Claudia Einecke, your curator of European art, before that show opened, and it was very exciting to hear about those drawings. Do you have any idea how long Pajo may be on view? At this point, I really can't say. That was a traveling show, and so it's not exclusively what we might want. It really depends on the organizing institution and other commitments that may have been made regarding that exhibition. So again, we're, there's, there's a lot of conversation. Everyone is trying to be as sensitive as we can to our sort of collective plight with this, but we're also coming to grips with the reality that this is one big puzzle and, you know, you push one domino and it sets off a whole set of, you know, problems for the schedule one this way and you push another domino and it starts to have reverberations through the rest of the schedule. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. I can imagine. The museum has had some wonderful virtual activities since the doors have been shut. Will the high continue with virtual activities and exhibitions that people can access online? I think so. I think we have to. I mean, I think that one of the things that we became, I think, hopefully very intentional about was that after the first month of being closed, you know, that first month, rather, you know, I give, I just want to recognize the incredible commitment and talent of our staff who really threw themselves deeply into the question of what it would mean for us to be a virtual art museum in the temporary uh, span of time that we were going to be closed. But that first month was really an incredible laboratory. We really just started trying to generate as many ideas as we could and try as many things as possible and so forth. And after about a month, I think we started to kind of say, okay, what, what, how can we begin to package them, some of these things as, as true programs that you know, have the ability to evolve over time so that six months from now, nine months from now, 12 months from now, how will this program allow, have allowed us to adapt and to continue to be interesting and meet a need in the community? I'm really hoping that on the other side of this, you know, we've built some new muscles, so to speak, and that while there may not be, you know, 12 or 15 things that come out of this, there might be five that ultimately become, you know, and certainly in the near term, uh, another layer of engagement for us as an institution. Hmm. Rent, in addition to entrance fees, ticket sales, the museum relies on revenue related to the gift shop and event rentals. What has been the estimated financial loss to the high since the museum shut down in response to COVID-19? I think the best way to kind of 
underscore that is to say that our fiscal year just ended May 31st. And FY20's budget, so this past year's budget, um, was uh, 20, about $21 million. This year's budget, FY21's budget, is $18 million. So you can see that there's, we're projecting about a $3 million decrease in revenue for the museum. Um, and that's, that's disappointing. That's the fuel for our mission. Those dollars are the fuel for our mission. And so it's going to be a challenge and it's going to be interesting, uh, but I think we have a good plan. I'm very proud of the fact that uh, this past year, we ended the year with a balanced budget. We did not, if, if you were, uh, you know, we made a huge commitment to our staff and our team. And so if you were, if you were a part-time regular, exempt or non-exempt employee at the museum, if you were, you know, if you were part of our ongoing staff, those people are all still with us. We did not have to reduce headcount in any way during that time period. The equation for FY21 does not include reduction in staff. Now, certainly we've put into place a hiring freeze. We've put into place a salary freeze for people and so forth. We've made difficult decisions in that space, but we're trying to do everything we can to recognize the severity of the situation, but also ensure that this museum continues to, to be of service to our community. That's gonna take a great deal of creativity and commitment on our part, but um, I'm, I'm confident enough in, in what we do and why we do it and who gets it done on our staff to know that the high will, will, will make it through this with the support of our community and donors. Rand Suffolk is the executive director of the High Museum of Art. The museum will welcome museum members and frontline workers free with valid ID from July 7th through the 17th, and then the museum opens to the general public on Saturday the 18th. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Taste buds ignite. As foodies go, Atlanta-based Kim Severson is a rock star. She is a James Beard Award and Pulitzer Prize-winning food writer for the New York Times. And she joined us in 2017 to discuss food traditions for July 4th, most notably hot dogs. Our conversation was so much fun. Airing this segment has become a holiday tradition. Here's Kim on hot dogs as an essential element of American food culture, especially for the 4th of July. Well, you have to think uh, about every simple thing that you want to eat when it's hot outside and that's easy to eat. You know, so much of the food we eat goes back to the big world fairs of the of the late uh, 1800s and early 1900s, the ice cream cone, uh, the hot dog, uh, the idea of putting meat on a bun so people could walk around. Mm -hmm. All of that comes, it's kind of this great Americana um, nostalgic food that yeah, we all grew up with. Yeah, who needs utensils? Who needs utensils? Who needs fancy foams? Who needs, you know, we have the hot dog and the ice cream cone. And really the 4th of July is the best time to just get your patriotic on. And I think a lot of us who are cooks and spend a lot of time 
looking um, globally for food these days and looking to um, improve our culinary skills and 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 do uh, fancier food and, and food with new flavor profiles, this is the day we get to just let our hair down and go full America, uh, which is why I love it. And I also think it's a day that you want something simple. You know, you... There are. This is green egg. We know we're in green egg country. We know there are many people who will spend many hours with their green egg. But I think you can go simple. You can heat up a grill. You can heat up a gas grill and not feel guilty for all you purists. And do something simple. This is why a hot dog is great. Hot dogs, hamburgers, something simple on the grill. Now with hot dogs, um, you know we did do this taste. We didn't, but my colleagues in New York City at the mothership. Uh, did a tasting of hot dogs, and they kept it specific to beef because New York is a beef hot dog town. Okay. New York is my happy place. It's its own universe. And, you know, Manhattan's my favorite island getaway. I think New York is the center of the universe. But as a born... And Ray Chicago. Okay, here we go. I have a top ten, but I'll limit it to five. Okay, give it to me. Chicago Symphony, Art Institute of Chicago, Second City, Chicago Pizza, and Chicago Hot Dogs. Oh, my God, Chicago Pizza? We've got to save that for another show because we can have a smackdown over Chicago Pizza, which is really lasagna, in yeah, my opinion. That, that, However, let's not go there. However, I, I will never give met you, a pizza I didn't like, by the way. <laughs> I will way. give you the Chicago hot dog, which I love for several reasons, but a lot of it is the way they run it through the garden with the sport peppers and the slice of pickle and the shake of celery salt. I, I have to agree with you that the Chicago-style hot dog, I, I, I agree, is a delicious and probably superior to the street water dog in New York. And there I've said it, and I hope I don't lose my job. My kind of go-to home hot dog is the Hebrew National Kosher Beef Frank. My partner's Jewish. I feel like that's a little nod to the culture there. So, But it is a great hot dog in part because it, um, it's the fat content is high enough. And that's the thing with a hot dog. Uh, you want to have enough fat content so that when it's on the bun, and, and it has to be, it has to, the, the ratio of bun to meat has to be correct, and it has to have enough juiciness so the bun gets just a little bit moist with the fat, not overly done, but just enough, you know. So all those things really, I think, matter when it comes to a hot dog. In Chicago, they steam the buns. I know, those soft, beautiful poppy seed buns. I, I listen, I'm thinking about it right now. And now in, in Atlanta, is there a place to get a good Chicago-style hot dog? Not that I know of. Okay, your house. We're all coming over. <laughs> I so. love it. <laughs> Um, but, you know, hot dogs are not the only thing you can put on a grill and not the only thing you want to eat on this most patriotic of holidays that's coming up. And I think this year, more than ever, we all need to love up our country, whatever side you're on, wherever you are. I think it's time to go full Americana. Yes, because patriotism is not nationalism. No, it's not. And it can be delicious. Absolutely. This is my theory. So, so with the United States as such a diverse nation— imbued with all these marvelous cultures. Um, all these people bring their cuisines to the holiday. What are some of the most interesting or perhaps intersectional Fourth uh, of July meals you've encountered as a food writer? Well, the thing about um, uh, meals like Thanksgiving or Fourth of July, my experience of people who have immigrated from other countries, they really want to try to 
uh, get to the core of this American holiday. And so with Thanksgiving, for example, you will have people who are doing, uh, you know, uh, kind of a uh, Vietnamese-style stuffing in a turkey, or you will have someone trying to do a a Chinese-style barbecued turkey, or you will have Persian rice Mm. with turkey as the meat. Like, there's this very fun amalgam of cultures that happen with American holidays. Um, But, you know, putting uh, putting meat on a a heat source, putting meat on live fire, putting meat on a grill is an incredibly universal thing. And so I think you would find people cooking... um, you know, I mean, I you know, Slovakia, things on a skewer, any kind of meat um, you find happening. But uh, consistently, uh, watermelon is is an, uh, is such an American Fourth of July treat and one that, you know, translates to all kinds of cultures, particularly people who come from hotter parts of the world, from South India, from other parts of the country, you know, that that hot, um, steamy summer heat and that cold watermelon. Mm. And I would encourage people. Because, you know, you want things simple on 4th of July because it is a holiday. You don't want to spend all your time in the kitchen. But there's a thing in the restaurant business where they talk about make it nice. So there's a way you can do simple things but make it nice and and have a good time. And one of the things I think is great is if you can find an old-fashioned rattlesnake watermelon, one of the old, long watermelons with seeds in it. And if you can chill it somehow in a cooler and cut big slices of that and encourage people to have an old-fashioned watermelon seed spitting contest, (laughs) you will have a great moment of Americana and nostalgia. Author Kim Severson is a food writer for The New York Times. She's based in Atlanta, lucky for us. Kim, we savor your thoughts about food and beyond. Thank you again for brightening city lights. Oh, it's my pleasure. And have some watermelon on the 4th of July. I'll think of you. Kim Severson is based in Atlanta. She is a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer for the New York Times. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., We'll bring you a July 4th special on American popular music and literature. Our producers are Summer Evans, Ryan McFadden, and Stephen Key. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes, wishing you a safe and happy holiday weekend. And thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.